So Justin Sinclair is our next speaker. We're very lucky to have Justin. Justin is a research fellow at the NICM Health Research Institute, an international leader in integrative medicine research based at Western Sydney University, where he is also the coordinator of the Australian Medical Cannabis Research and Education Collaboration. For the last three years, he has also served on United and Compassion's Scientific Advisory Board, Australia's leading medical cannabis patient advocacy group, again in a pro bono capacity. His scientific background is in pharmacognosy, i.e. drugs that come from plants. But his research interests extend into botany, ethnopharmacology, <laughs> analytical photochemistry, horticulture, and pathophysiology, much like myself. <laughs> he is currently a co-investigator on several clinical research projects in development around medicinal cannabis and spends much of his time lecturing to medicinal practitioners, nurses, politicians, and other allied health professionals about the therapeutic applications of the cannabis genus. He has published on the topics of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system, pain management, and herb slash drug interactions in peer-reviewed publications, and is a member of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians and International Cannabinoid Research Society. He's about to commence on his PhD and he has a number of new publications about to come up. We're incredibly lucky to um, have his generous time and I'm sure you're gonna find this fascinating. Please uh, join me in welcoming Justin. Thank you. So thank you very much uh, for that, Rita, and uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for the invitation um, from the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association to speak with you today. Um, I as much as uh, Lucy speaks to you about advocacy, uh, my main job is education. And so I'm hoping um, that the uh, glucose uh, has, uh, and caffeine has uh, fired up those uh, neurons because uh, we're about to get uh, fairly technical. So one thing I just wanted to make quite clear from the get-go um, is that recreational cannabis and medicinal cannabis are two very different plants. One's grown illicitly, in many cases poorly, and utilizing all sorts of insecticides, fungicides, or other hormonal growing agents. Whereas medicinal cannabis is grown to incredibly high quality assurance standards, making it safer for medicinal use, and much easier for standardized chemical profiling to produce a reproducible result. So we have to compare apples and apples when it comes to this discussion. And one thing I must implore you to keep in mind is that most of the evidence for its perceived harm, its increased risk of psychosis, Toxicity, dependence has all been based on recreational cannabis in the vast majority of the literature. So with that now being said, I have uh, quite a bit to cover today, so we'll jump straight in. I'm going to take you on a journey uh, through the cannabis plant. We'll look at its botany, a little bit of its morphology, its phytochemistry, that's the active constituents that are actually contained within the plant, uh, some of the facts and fallacies surrounding the plant that have led us to be where we are right now. So without further ado, so this is just uh, in the interest of transparency. Here's a list of my affiliations uh, and disclosure. So please note that I'm not paid nor have received payment for any of the medicinal cannabis uh, cultivators or manufacturers either here in Australia or internationally. 
Furthermore, I've not received any remuneration for any of the public talks I've given over the topic over the past four years to nurses, doctors, <coughs> patients, uh, and carers. So all of the work that I've done in this space is entirely pro bono. So all right, let's get started with the star of the show um, and begin with a little bit of botany. So the Cannabasi family, as you can see up here, uh, is a relatively small family, uh, comprising about 11 genera and around about 170 different species. And cannabis comes from the same family as another member uh, of this uh, group called Humulus lupulus, which I'm sure some of you may have even partaken in just last night, which we commonly know as hops and is a common ingredient in beer. So in herbal medicine, hops is used for its mild sedative and hypnotic agent, and not surprisingly, cannabis shares uh, similar activity. Now currently, and for many years, it's been believed that there are largely two major species within the uh, cannabis genus that are used medicinally, cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. But you also see a third up there that's to be considered, which is known as cannabis ruderalis, albeit it's seen as a little bit phytochemically inferior in some ways, uh, and not something that is used a lot in breeding programs. But I'll get to explain why a little later. Now with recent genetic evidence that's being brought to bear, we now believe the polytypic model um, has been proven correct, and that subspecies uh, have been proposed uh, a lot with this plant, denoting uh, places of origin internationally. Now more to the point, with so much interbreeding between different species, um, the whole idea uh, producing different hybrids or varieties or what is commonly known as strains, it's almost a moot point to actually sit there and describe or decide uh, what species is best for what. What we really need to do is analyze the phytochemistry of the plant and use this information uh, to then guide us into what type of <coughs> clinical indications this might be useful for. Now as you notice for medicine we typically want the female unfertilized inflorescence Inflorescence is just a fancy name for tiny little flowers, okay? So the, the, the flowering bud, if you will, as it's known, um, we call inflorescence in botany. But I'll talk more, uh, more about that in just a minute. Now here is a map of the present day ranges of the cannabis gene pool, which is taken from a book called Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany by Robert Clark and Mark Merlin. So here you notice the proposed new subspecies within the cannabis genus uh, down the bottom of this slide. Um, and it talks about narrow and broad-leafed uh, varieties. Now, interestingly here, one thing I want you to pay particular attention to is that uh, where it's actually capable of sustaining plant life, um, you'll find cannabis has been there, okay? So second is that cannabis is seen on every major inhabited continent because our ancestors took it with them wherever they went. Such was its value and its need. They needed it as a staple and revered it for its versatility and its hardiness. Now we'll actually now take some time to have a look at some of the different morphological characteristics of the cannabis genus, so you can see what it looks like uh, and what parts are actually used medicinally. So note here that both leaves look quite similar. They both share this clas uh, classic tapered acuminate apex, uh, a compound leaf structure, palmate structure looking like a hand, and a serrated leaf margin. But the length, width, and chemical characteristics of these two cannabis uh, strains would be markedly different. Whether broad or narrow leaf species or subspecies, both will share medicinal and industrial applications. So did you know that the leaves, uh, which are generally regarded as a, a waste product uh, of cultivation uh, of cannabis, uh, are actually starting to be used a lot more medicinally? Uh, so there's uh, anecdotal reports of patients juicing the leaves and the flowers. Um, and getting uh, 
a great deal of benefit for uh, particularly autoimmune conditions. Now, of course, it's only anecdotal evidence, but some of you may have even heard about that uh, with the case of the Taylors, which has just gone through uh, down in the uh, Penrith courts, uh, in which uh, a gentleman uh, was uh, found uh, guilty uh, or charged with uh, um, growing, I think it was 107 cannabis plants for his two daughters, but the difference was is that they were juicing them, so there was no actual intoxicant activity at all. So there's so much that we still need to learn uh, about the chemistry of this plant. Now here on this slide you can see on the left a uh, cannabis, uh, male cannabis plant. So the stamens that you see up there uh, are what, uh, that have a filament and an anther is upon which the pollen is produced. And as you can see in figure four, um, the male cannabis plant produces quite a large amount of pollen, which can travel great distances on the wind. And for this reason, much like Catholic school, the males are kept away from the females unless uh, reproduction is wanting to take place. So they, they've, they've even found pollen uh, from plants in Morocco that have, uh, that have actually been found and identified uh, you know, 2,000 kilometers away. So the wind can carry this pollen uh, quite some distance. So if a female plant obviously gets pollinated with this pollen, it will produce a large amount of seeds which detract from its ability to actually produce larger amounts of phytochemicals like the cannabinoids and the terpenes and may negatively impact that medicinal potency. So as such, the standard for producing medicinal cannabis varieties uh, is to ensure that only unfertilized female plants or what is commonly known as sensimia is cultivated and generally cuttings or clones are then taken from these mother plants and they have the identical genetic makeup uh, of that original mother and will therefore have a much easier time to reproduce its phytochemistry. So you'll notice what looks like there's a, a hazy uh, kind of coating on the female plant on the right here. And I can assure you that this is not a mold or a fungus. This is actually another morphological structure known as the trichomes. So on this slide, you can see two female cannabis plants. On the left, you can see the feathery-looking female reproductive part, uh, known as the stigma, which is the structure that the male pollen lands upon for fertilization to occur. So you can also see these glandular trichomes, so which are the magnified on the right for you. And this is where the phytochemicals, largely, of medicinal interest are stored. This is namely the cannabinoids and the terpenes. So as the plant reaches maturity, or what we call in botany senescence, the clear trichomes become more opaque and almost milky under magnification, which is showing the cultivator that the time for harvest is actually fast approaching. Now hashish, which many of you may have heard of, is just a resinous compound of just these glandular trichomes and represents a very strong end product that has been used in ritual, ceremony, uh, and medicine, of course, by humans for thousands of years. As it's essentially purified cannabinoids and terpenes, much less is required um, to be used as a medicine. And there are many companies that are actually just using that, uh, that the trichomes and then extracting that in oil to get the quantified amount that they require. So here you can see in figure eight, uh, compressed glandular trichomes forming the solid form hashish. So if you were to view that under a microscope, you'd just see this amazing mass of condensed uh, compressed trichomes. Now hashish is pre uh, predominantly produced in two major ways, shaking or rubbing. Shaking requires the use of an incredibly fine material used much like a sieve, which the cannabis product is pushed throughout and the trichomes are collected at the bottom. Rubbed hashish, as you can see, is a little bit easier because it just involves you walking around the plantation, rubbing your hands over the plant, particularly around the flowers, and after about 10 to 20 minutes, your hands will be caked in what is basically pure hashish, and then they would just scrape that off. And this is something that's obviously not used 
uh, in medicinal products. But this is something that has been used traditionally in India, Jamaica, uh, and it's commonly known as charis. Now in figure 10 here, you can see a finished trimmed uh, flower, floss, inflorescence, or what's just commonly known as a bud, uh, covered in those glandular trichomes. So the specific strain here, that's uh, uh, the nomenclature, uh, common nomenclature, is it uh, called Baba Kush, and it pays uh, homage to the Hindu Kush mountain range in Afghanistan where its genetic lineage comes from. So both of these varieties that you see here, whether it's Baba Kush or the Afghani Kush, both come from that same region, which is a very rich resin-producing plant. So it has fairly high amounts of THC, okay? That's, that's uh, its genetics. But what's interesting is you'll know, looking at these two samples, they look very different. And this is uh, uh, showing a phenotypic uh, difference or expression. Just like all of us in this room, we're all of the same species, but we all look slightly different. And the environment that the cannabis is grown in is what will change that and its chemistry. Now here's something that's quite unique about the cannabis family, um, and particularly uh, cannabis species, uh, the sativa and indica. So cannabis sativa and cannabis indica are known to be affected by what's called photoperiodism, so which is defined as the developmental response of the physiological reaction of the plant to the relative length of the daylight cycle. Okay? So basically, what, what the sun does to the, uh, to, to the plant. Now, for most of you, you, I'm sure you're aware that during spring and summer, as we're entering into now, most plants will actually go into flower. So they start putting out flowers uh, and uh, reproduction uh, takes place. But not cannabis, uh, indica or, or sativa. What they do is they actually go into what's called a vegetative state and they start putting out as many leaves as they possibly can to maximize on all of that beautiful sunlight um, of the 15 to 18 hours that we're getting across spring and summer. And what happens then is that, in the that that's why we can grow cannabis indoors so well, because it's the relative length of the daylight cy uh, cycle that actually puts the plant into its different either vegetative or flowering stages. So here is just another example that you can see of similar vegetative growth patterns. These are obviously much younger. So but this time, um, the various spectrums of photosynthetic photon flux density, which is the different types of wavelengths that are used in lighting, um, a, lot of, a lot of growers, particularly overseas, are needing to utilize this because they don't have um, a wonderful uh, climate or climes like we do here in Australia where we could grow uh, for much longer. Now, as the sunlight wanes, uh, so as we start to go into autumn and winter, that actually triggers the plant to go into flower. Okay? So around that 10 to 12 hours of sunlight a day, that will automatically trigger the plant to start producing flowers. So this should make it, I think, fairly evident why it can be grown indoors so well and how you can get many um, batches, if you will, um, of cannabis plants through in a 12-month uh, cycle. Because all you're doing is keeping the plant uh, in 15 to 18 hours to keep it in a vegetative state, and then when you're ready, you just switch the, switch the light phase and it goes into flower. So we can, and if we were just to rely on this with what the sun produces, we wouldn't get as much. So this is why a lot of people are growing indoors, and obviously to be able to control the amount of pollen that might come into contact with their plant. Now this beautiful specimen's there, not me of course, the plants, these beautiful um, Cannabis sativa, subspecies sativa. So these are hemp varieties, uh, rich in cannabidiol, CBD. Um, and as you can see, these actually, these samples here have got about another two to three weeks to grow. Um, and they're already standing at about 12 to 13 feet. So these are very, very different because they're growing in, in, in 
temperate regions, um, they grow quite high, whereas a lot of the Kush varieties that we were just talking about in uh, Afghanistan, because they're growing at high elevation and it's very cold, a plant like that wouldn't last very long because it would freeze. So we start to see these different uh, expressions of the plant uh, phenotypically uh, in exposure to the different um, environments that they have. Now, whilst my talk will be focusing mostly on the medicinal uses and chemistry of cannabis, it's worthy of note that cannabis has had an incredibly long history uh, as use as both a food and fiber. Australia was, I believe, the last country in the world to actually utilize hemp food, uh, and that just happened, uh, I think, last year. Um, so it's thought that uh, many ancient civilizations uh, from the Asian and European regions of uh, cultivated species of cannabis um, for many, many different reasons, with some academics believing uh, this goes on for at least 20,000 years. So the seeds of cannabis produce a highly nutritious oil, uh, rich in both omega-3 uh, and six essential fatty acids, and this oil can be converted into things like biodiesel to fuel cars. It's even been used in plastic manufacture. So it's an incredible industry uh, to see, hopefully, uh, benefit our Australian farmers. So that soft but durable fibre that you can see there, that's the bast fibres, which was a mainstay um, for the British Empire. Um, when Australia was first settled as a colony, uh, hemp was actually, it was as mandated that hemp must be grown so that we could provide the rigging for the sails uh, of the British Navy. So by definition, things are about to get a bit more technical now, so uh, bear with me. Um, phytochemistry is the study and analysis of the many different chemicals, of course, that occur within plants. And on this amazing planet, there's about 240,000 species of flowering plants, and we've only studied about 10,000 uh, for medicinal uh, virtues. So it really does go to show how much we uh, still need to learn. Now that we've touched on a little bit of botany and, and morphology, we'll now have a look at the phytochemicals within cannabis that can interact with our endocannabinoid receptors. And not only cannabinoids, but those also that contribute therapeutically from other uh, mechanisms of action. So you've all probably heard of the psychoactive delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol uh, and also cannabidiol down the bottom there, um, getting a lot of media attention, of course, because of its benefit with epilepsy um, and uh, intractable epilepsy uh, specifically. All right, so let's take you through this diagram. It's all right. I just do this to have a look at your faces, guys. I do this for everyone. Okay, I do this for everyone. The You'll be very happy to know your faces look exactly like my second years that, that I teach phytochemistry to. Um, so we'll move on to something that looks a little bit like the love child of the uh, street directory of Sydney and a chemistry textbook. And for our purposes, this is going to be much more manageable. Now, cannabinoids are a class of what are called terpenophenolic compounds that occur in the cannabis plant. So you can see why they're called terpenophenolic on this diagram, because at the top right-hand corner, you've got a levitolic acid representing the phenolic moiety, and on the left is geranyl pyrophosphate, which represents the terpene moiety. So these two come together to form in the middle cannabigerolic acid, CBGA, which is the precursor for all major cannabinoid acids. Now it's in this acid form, which is largely carboxylated, okay, so uh, meaning that they have a carbon dioxide molecule attached to them, uh, the COOH, which I've highlighted in uh, blue for you. So if you go skipping through a cannabis plantation, picking flowers and eating them, I hate to break it to you, but the cannabinoids exist in this acidic form, and you'll not get high off it, as it will not bind with the correct CB1 receptor, and will not cross the blood-brain barrier in this more polar form. 
So far, there have been over 144 different cannabinoids that have been classified across the cannabis species. But this is largely dependent on the strain of cannabis that's actually being tested, as they are all demonstrating unique cannabinoid profiles, which are all subject to change based on environmental stimulus. So things like water supply, sunlight exposure, temperature, soil pH, and nutrient availability can all alter the phytochemical profile of this plant. So you can understand that growing this to a high standard uh, requires a, a fairly high degree of skill. So in the fresh plant, it's these acids, um, the acid form that exists. So as you can see in the rectangle at the top of the slide, not their end products, which we actually then go on to use as medicines, such as Delta-9-THC or CBD. So once we dry and cure the plant material or expose it to heat, uh, such as in vaping or smoking, uh, those carboxyl groups that you see highlighted in blue start to vibrate at a really high frequency and they snap off. And this releases the carbon dioxide and allows this new decarboxylated product to actually interact with the various cannabinoid receptors and other receptor types. So here you can see down the bottom uh, the process of decarboxylation and how it changes the non-psychoactive or the non-intoxicant tetrahydrocannabinolic acid, THCA, which is how it exists in the fresh plant, uh, into the psychoactive delta-9-THC, uh, that uh, uh, constituent which is commonly associated with the feeling of the user being stoned. Now, the one thing that's interesting, though, is this is the same process that happens for all of the others. So CBDA, your cannabidiolic acid, would go through the same process to be turned into CBD, which is what is used for epilepsy. All right, so let's have a look at some of the um, preliminary evidence. THC, we'll start with, binds with relatively high affinity for both the CB1 and CB2 receptors in the central nervous system very similar to that of our own endogenously produced anandamide. So this constituent is associated with the feeling of psychoactivity and if given in high isolated doses can cause dysphoria and potential paranoia and anxiety in certain individuals. Pharmacologically, THC is a well-described analgesic in the management of pain relating to cancer, muscle spasm, migraine, phantom limb pain, spinal cord injury, damaged nerves, that is neuropathic pain, and even post-surgery. It's been shown benefit in assisting with muscle spasticity associated with multiple sclerosis uh, and is also uh, reducing, as Lucy's uh, discussed, uh, its benefit in chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Less well-known is evidence supporting its use for lowering intraocular pressures in glaucoma uh, or reducing symptoms associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now CBD, on the other hand, is a non-psychoactive cannabinoid. Um, although this is debatable, because the term psychoactive actually means being able to be a substance that can change mood or behavior. And what you'll see pretty clearly is that this has anxiolytic and has also now been shown to have antidepressant activity because it works on the 5-HT1A receptor. So I think we need to come up with a new term. Maybe non-intoxicant might be a better term because it's actually um, not exactly accurate, okay? So CBD, on the other hand, as we said, uh, opposes the dysphoric effects of THC, which is why it's generally of benefit to ensure that the two constituents are actually present in varying amounts or ratios uh, in, for different therapeutic conditions. Unlike THC, CBD has a very low affinity for the CB1 or CB2 receptors in the central nervous system and peripheral, but rather works via different mechanisms of action, as I said, being an agonist for serotonin receptors, the 5-HT1A, which may explain why it exhibits this antidepressant and anxiolytic activity. Due to CBD's antioxidant, anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective actions, 
It holds great interest to researchers in the treatment of seizures, epilepsy, Parkinson's, Huntington's, multiple sclerosis, and of course, Alzheimer's disease as well. So I'm sure you've noticed uh, the fact that some of these pharmacological actions are highlighted as showing that these actions are shared across just these two constituents, albeit in many cases, this will be by different mechanisms of action, different receptors, okay? So, but this is just two out of the 144 um, that have been characterized within the cannabis uh, genus. So worthy of note within the minor cannabinoids um, is delta-8-THC, which exhibits uh, less psychoactivity than delta-9, but still express expresses many of the beneficial and useful therapeutic activities of its stronger cousin. Tetrahydrocannabivirin, THCV, exhibits anticonvulsant activity similar to CBD, and cannabidivirin, and is of interest in improving glucose tolerance also at the moment in type 2 diabetes, which as you guys know is obviously a significant public health problem around the world. Um, whereas cannabinol and cannabigerol, uh, CBN, CBG, share the ability to decrease proliferation of keratinocytes and show some promise um, in psoriasis. And so research is being conducted into this. Now, whilst a large amount of these actions have been demonstrated only in vitro or in animal models, um, it really does highlight how much more there is to this plant than just, uh, particularly from a research perspective, and benefit to patients than just THC and CBD. Now, cannabinoids are highly lipophilic, okay? So they cross cell membranes very easy. When smoked, they cross the blood-brain barrier very quickly, in many cases, uh, smoked or vaped within uh, 30 to 90 seconds, and have a very rapid onset of action. However, when ingested, taken orally, they're metabolized by the liver. So THC gets metabolized into 11-hydroxy-THC, which is a far more therapeutically potent and lasts a lot longer. So whereas you vape or smoke, it generally will last two to four hours. If you internally ingest it, it can last up to eight. And so it's not just about knowing the amounts of the cannabinoids that are in the product that uh, a medical practitioner is giving to a patient. It's the dosage form that will actually change the way that that will affect and interact with that patient as well. So this is just a little infographic I designed um, that lists some of the actions associated with the various other major uh, and minor cannabinoids. So what we'll do now, uh, and I'm quite happy to make this available um, to uh, Rita uh, to, to share my talk with you. So what we'll do now is have a look at a completely different chemical class. Um, this is known as the um, terpenes. So as I'm sure you remember, the terpene class is also found and held within the glandular trichomes. This is the phytochemical class that largely contributes the uni unique tastes and smells that are associated with cannabis strains. So you can think of these as kind of like the essential oils that the cannabis plant produces. They're not unique to the cannabis plant, um, but are also commonly and abundantly distributed throughout many other um, plant families and species. Now up, up the top there, you can see limonene, and it's responsible for the smell of many citrus species. But what you might not know is that that little terpene packs quite a therapeutic punch by not only having strong anxiolytic and antidepressant activity, but also showing evidence for use in gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, has also been found to have an antibacterial action um, and has been shown to produce cell death in breast cancer cells. So these antioxidant and anxiolytic actions highlighted in blue are also shared with CBD, but occur via different mechanisms. So having multiple phytochemicals within a plant that exhibits similar pharmacological activity increase the therapeutic potential of the medicine and is something that herbalists and scientists are now calling the entourage effect. So when we have, uh, the next one is beta-mercine, the monoterpene um, exhibits muscle relaxant 
sedative, anti-inflammatory and, and analgesic action, which as you know are obviously also both shared with CBD and THC. At concentrations of just over 0.5%, this is associated with the well-known couch lock phenomenon, so inc incredibly strong muscle relaxant, act uh, muscle relaxant activity. Patients that generally have um, a lot of pain, muscular pain and spasm uh, in, a, in the United States and Canada do seek out uh, varieties that have higher beta mercine. It's kind of, it works so strongly apparently. I had a, a patient once say to me, it's, uh, it's my honey, can you get me the Tim Tams medicine? Because they can't actually move out of their couch. Um, and then many of you will probably be familiar with the alpha pinene, that beautiful smell of pine needles. Um, and that's down the bottom there. So you can see here this has anti-inflammatory and bronchodilatory activities. And again, as you can see, uh, these are shared activities, shared pharmacological actions uh, with the two major cannabinoids. And so many other terpenes exist with over 200 uh, being identified in cannabis alone. One of the ones that's really interesting is actually linalool, uh, which is also found in lavender. So this calming terpene is useful for anxiety, and in 1995 uh, was actually found in a study to be uh, seen as uh, having anticonvulsant properties as well. So as you can see, there's a great deal um, of crossover when it comes to the, the, just these two uh, phytochemical classes. That being said, there's over 700 different phytochemicals that have been characterized across the various cannabis strains within this genus. So the diversity of pharmacological actions and potential benefit for many different health problems is easy to see, but it also shows you how much research um, we still have left to do, because most of the research has just been on THC and CBD. What other kinds of interesting medicinal breakthroughs are there? We're still yet to find out. So here are just a handful of the other phytochemical classes uh, that come from cannabis. Worthy of note here are the flavonoids, which exhibit a very wide-ranging anti-inflammatory activity. Now, whilst I don't want to bore you with too much detail, I think I've expressed just how complex and incredible this plant really is. You literally can grow a specific plant that expresses a certain phytochemical profile and then manufacture medicines from that um, to produce um, a from a specific strain of, of the plant. Now, as cannabinoids and other pharmacologically active phytochemicals such as the terpene class are highly lipophilic, the dosage form of how cannabis is, is administered is also very, very important and very clinically relevant. So this may determine the difference between treatment failure and amelioration of symptoms and also other factors such as the duration effect and potency. Typically encountered dosage forms uh, include capsules, sublingual sprays, you can see these here. Each of these different dosage forms will impact the way the chemistry is absorbed. So for example, orally ingested THC, uh, rich dosage forms will undergo biotransformation in the liver through the cytochrome P450 system. But it will take about 30 to 9 or 60 uh, to 90 minutes to take effect, but will provide a much longer lasting duration of activity. Whereas smoking or vaping, a similar variety, will provide much quicker onset of action, but only last around two to four hours. What's great about this is that multiple dosage forms could be utilized by individual patients based on symptom expression, leaving the ability to individualize treatment and titrate dose accurately uh, for the individual. So the correct dosage form is an integral component to ensuring effective medicinal cannabis strategy, and yet another variable that clinicians and patients need to consider. Not all of these have been well studied, however, uh, and not all have large amounts of clinical evidence as yet due to the only recent legal status. Mainly in Australia, um, it is infused oils, oral, oral use, um, some capsules, and dried floss are the main ways that it's used in Australia. 
And it would be remiss not to talk, of course, about um, interactions. Um, there are some uh, currently, these are a list of some of the currently known interactions that clinicians need to be careful of. And it's strongly advised that uh, doctors before starting therapy always uh, do a uh, check to see uh, what cytochrome P450 um, pathways the drugs that the patient is taking go through. So here you can see um, the cannabidiol um, is actually the one that's a little bit more uh, concerning. Uh, so not THC necessarily. So it can inhibit site 3A4, 3A5, and 2D6, which actually uh, represents a fair chunk of certain pharmaceutical medicines uh, that can cycle through that. So by potently inhibiting them, uh, obviously this can increase the serum levels of the drug um, and can potentially increase the risk of side effects of that drug. So something to be clinically relevant uh, and aware of um, for your patients. All right, so how did we get here? I take a little bit of a um, prosaic view at this. Um, fighting for the reintroduction uh, of a herbal medicine with thousands of years of therapeutic application. Well, here's one of the men that are responsible for it all. In perhaps what I think is one of the greatest examples of propaganda engineering in recent history, Harry Anslinger is largely credited for the lies and falsehoods um, that have been associated with cannabis, and cannabis, unfortunately, is still labeled with to this day. Hand-selecting the best of bigotry, racism, and religious fear in the strokes of testimonies and testimonies to Congress, he single-handedly abolished and made illegal the use of a plant that's been serving humankind for millennia. It's said that he bullied and coerced many in the medical profession to support his claims. With a pharmacologist, um, Dr. James Munch, an expert witness of Anslinger, actually testifying under oath, and I quote, that after two puffs on a marijuana cigarette, I was turned into a bat. Um, so, I mean, it seems legit to me, but I would actually like to have had access to what he was actually smoking um, so I could test it. Um, now, having, having a read through this, it's pretty horrifying, okay? I mean, who in their right mind would ever call jazz or swing satanic music, for one? Um, now, I don't know about you, but speaking for myself, I've partaken in far more acts of violence under the influence of alcohol than any other drug. I, in fact, I dare say the limits of violence that many have experienced under the influence of cannabis extend largely to smashing a whole pizza and then destroying half a tub of Sara Lee ice cream whilst watching a David Attenborough documentary. <laughs> so now we're going to have a brief look at the wonders that Anslinger released into the general public during his long tenure in drug enforcement. They would be hilarious um, if they were not so effective. So, for the 1930s uh, Christian and Catholic majority in the US, these posters immediately struck terror into the hearts of parents everywhere. I particularly like the reference to the use of a pill on the right and lots of references to hell, the devil, and sin. For any God-fearing American, this was basically a mandate from on high, as to use cannabis would therefore cast doubts on one's faith. This was a step one in a very effective fear-driven campaign to control the masses, and considering that at the time of all the representative political assembly, only one was a noted atheist, it was a good way to actually control policy as well. But this is just the start. Where it gets really interesting uh, is on this. Next slides. All right. So these are perhaps my favorite um, from the collection of Anslinger's Fantasy. Um, on the right here, we have some more positive reinforcement of the devil and religious overtones, so it's good to at least they had some continuity in their message. I also enjoy the term sex orgies. Now, I know I'm not let out of the lab much these days, but I must admit I'm at a loss to decipher what other types of orgies exist. And 
consider the, you know, when you consider the definition of the word at least, so I do hope that my audience will enlighten me if I've been overlooking something glaringly obvious. But this next one, as we see, is just pure gold. As Lucy said earlier, here we are to learn that um, the needle is actually how we use it. I'm sure you and millions of people around the world are quite shocked to know and learn that they've been using it wrong all this time. And I'm, I'm sure it's got nothing to do with trying to hook it uh, and tie it with uh, a more illicit and nasty heroin. So this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, is why such prejudice still exists today for this herbal medicine and still exists in the training programs of med medical professionals to this day. Like I said, um, it would be humorous if it wasn't so successful. Now, let's have a look at some of the concerns raised by many in the political and medical communities around uh, these very important topics, starting out with IQ. So it's long been touted that cannabis reduces human IQ because it kills neurons. Now, whilst consumption of various varieties of cannabis um, that are bred to be high in tetrahydrocannabinol may indeed cause a decreased function in short-term memory, these changes are not considered permanent and resolve with cessation. So to any students in attendance, uh, please consider that when preparing for your exams. <laughs> More interestingly, however, is that compounds within cannabis have actually been found to be neuroprotective. In vitro and animal studies are demonstrating that certain cannabinoids in cannabis, such as CBD, may reduce damage to the brain caused by lack of blood flow or oxygen, um, and also assist in preventing neurological degeneration, as is seen in multiple sclerosis or Alzheimer's disease. Now, whilst more research certainly needs to be conducted in human trials, the preliminary results are, are very encouraging. Now, as any of you know, um, the significance of twin studies you'll enjoy this article here. So recently a review of two longitudinal twin studies conducted by Jackson and colleagues published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, again you'll see those guys pop up, um, found that cannabis use, uh, cannabis using twins, so twins that um, were using cannabis failed to show significantly greater IQ decline relative to their abstinent siblings, which is therefore suggestive that observed declines in IQ are more attributable to familial or other factors. So this is one that's quite interesting. Um, all cannabis gets you high. So compounds such as tetrahydrocannabinol, Delta 9, are generally attributed with that um, intoxicant effect, uh, making the user feel high or stoned. Now, narrow-leaf drug varieties rich in CBD and lower in THC are still very uh, incredibly useful medicines that don't cause that feeling, which is why many people actually prefer to use those non-intoxicant varieties or strains richer in CBD during the day um, to help them manage their symptoms and then use uh, higher or higher THC or stronger THC varieties at night to help them assist with pain and help them with sleep. This is perhaps one of the greatest um, strengths of cannabis is its ability to be individualized and, and, and selected for its phytochemistry. So do the, does this mean that THC is a potentially negative constituent, I hear you ask? And the answer, of course, is certainly not. If I hear one more person, particularly politician, suggest that CBD is medicinal cannabis and THC-rich strains are recreational, I'll probably burst a vessel. So THC is the main constituent involved in the pain-relieving, sedative, and muscle-relaxing activities that have been scientifically attributed to cannabis. And in the interest of fairness, perspective, and comparing apples and apples with apples, of course, let's not forget that pharmaceutical drugs such as the opiates and benzos don't exactly leave you feeling normal either. So what about the topic of cannabis causing dependence or being highly addictive? 
So this is obviously an important topic and one that many patients and their carers, medical professionals and politicians are concerned about. Whilst conflicting evidence actually exists on this topic in the scientific literature, after reviewing sample sizes used in various studies, I found this one uh, from Anthony, Warner and Kessler in 94, which surveyed over 8,000 people in the USA between the ages of 15 and 54 on drug usage, which was designed to assess patterns of dependence. So it fits this question perfectly. So of particular interest is that cannabis, as you can see, can indeed cause dependency. However, let's also look at things a little more closely. 24% of the study respondents with a history of dependence, one in four, reported being dependent to tobacco, whilst 14% or one in seven reported dependence to alcohol, as classified by the DSM. So worthy of note here after seeing these previous stats is that only 4% reported dependence to cannabis, six times less than that of tobacco, which as you'll, I'm surely uh, remember, uh, both tobacco and tobacco, uh, sorry, tobacco and alcohol, both legal in Australia, um, and much, much higher rates of dependence. So now getting back on topic, many other factors obviously need to be considered in, the, in, in this discussion, such as individual variability uh, of the patient, why the cannabis was being utilized. For example, if someone is suffering chronic intractable pain um, that's non-responsive to medical pharmaceutical uh, management, it's reasonable, I think, to assume that they would be dependent on cannabis for pain relieving activities on a daily basis. We also need to consider this that as an illicit substance, uh, cannabis is also the cheapest to obtain in comparison to substances such as uh, cocaine and heroin. Now in this study conducted in the United Kingdom, you can clearly see that cannabis is very low down on the dependency list. Coffee, just so you guys know, which is not on the scale, comes in at 0.9, which is higher than cannabis at 0.8. Yet the Green Queen's legal but deadly cousins, alcohol and tobacco, are both far up that left end of the scale of dependence. I always find it funny how these statistics are conveniently looked over by government scientific evaluation committees. So this now leads us to the next question. Does cannabis cause people to go on to use harder drugs? And the evidence here is actually quite compelling. So the idea of cannabis being a gateway drug is not new. It's been touted for many, many decades. And not surprisingly, there is a great deal of conflicting evidence in the scientific literature. Firstly, we need to consider that as cannabis is obtained from the black market due to its current illegality, it stands to reason that other illicit drugs of a harder nature are also obtained from similar sources. This simple association is potentially difficult to remove as a confounding variable in study results. However, in California, a state that has legalized medicinal cannabis dispensaries, patients can access medicinal cannabis with just a card from their authorized healthcare provider. This study conducted in California in 2008 on 350 registered medicinal cannabis users found that cannabis may actually serve as an exit drug, not a gateway drug at all. So let's have a look at some of these figures. 40% of the respondents reported using cannabis as a substitute for alcohol, which we already know has a higher dependency rate. 26% used it as a substitute for other illicit drugs, and a whopping 66% used it as a substitution for prescription medications. Further, findings also suggested that 65% of patients use medicinal cannabis due to the propensity for less side effects, 34% due to less uh, withdrawal effects, and 57% because they felt it provided better symptom management for their specific medical condition. So now in the interest of balance, this is only a small study, but it does propose a counter-argument against the traditional viewpoint. And whilst on this topic, new evidence has been shown that medicinal cannabis use is associated with a decrease in pharmaceutical opioid deaths. 
The CDC, Center for Disease Control in the USA, posted that in 2010, over 16,000 people died from pharmaceutical opioid analgesics, which equates to roughly 45 people per day, and that opioid overdoses have quadrupled from the year 2000 to 2014. Now, in Australia, the rise of addiction um, to prescription opiates has been particularly noteworthy and devastating also. From 2002 to 2009, the amount of oxycodone prescribed in Australia increased by 180%. Furthermore, in the late 90s, hospitalizations due to opioid poisoning were predominantly related to heroin, but by 2008, prescription opioids accounted for 80% of opioid-related hospitalizations. So I also read an interesting paper by Mahuri and colleagues published in 2013 with data that covered 2002 to 2012 showing that the incidence of heroin initiation was 19 times higher among those who reported prior non-medical opioid pain reliever use than among those that did not. Whereas a study by Lankanau in 2012 suggests that young urban injection drug users interviewed in just between one year of 2008 to 2009 found that 86% of them had used opioid pain relievers non-medically prior to using heroin. So what we're seeing, obviously, is an interesting trend starting to emerge. So what about some uniquely Australian statistics, I hear you ask? Well, here you go. Up the top, you can see some numbers of overall deaths from pharmaceuticals, illegal drugs, and alcohol from the years 2009 to 2015. An alarming trend, again, is easy to see. The second table down below shows statistics of overdose deaths for just the opioids and the benzo classes. It's easy to see that thousands of Australians have overdosed on prescription medications, and the really concerning thing is that that is just Victorian statistics. And in this regard, cannabis is coming to the rescue based on evidence that's come to pass in the last two years. Where are you? There you are. Now, Barcuba and co colleagues published a paper in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2014 which has clearly demonstrated that state medicinal cannabis laws in the USA are associated with significantly lower state-level opioid overdose mortality rates, which lowered in year one by 20% and strengthened to 33% after six years with a mean average of 25. Such evidence supports the findings presented in the Ryman statistics earlier and also supports that cannabis may well be an exit drug after all. And this paper by Lucas, which is published in Harm Reduction Journal, released just last, uh, uh, last year. So this is um, also confirming what's known as the substitution effect and suggests that there is a growing body of evidence to support the use of cannabis as an adjunct um, or substitute for opioids, particularly when you consider uh, the large amounts of overdose deaths. And the Australian Medical Association obviously has declared this a major public health focus, um, both in 2015 and 2017. So furthermore, I think, and perhaps more interestingly, is that medicinal cannabis may also show huge cost savings to the public healthcare system. In this study by Bradford and Bradford in 2016, it was shown that uh, between 20, uh, 2010 and 2013, US states with medicinal use of cannabis were shown to have a 12% lower rate of pain relief uh, prescriptions in their US Medicaid uh, patients over 65 years of age, and between 8 to 13% lower rates of prescriptions for anxiety, depression, nausea, psychosis, uh, and sleep disorders. National overall reductions in the Medicare program when states implemented medicinal cannabis laws were estimated to be approximately 165 million US dollars, a not unsubstantial amount of money. So maybe it's a gateway after all, 
uh, to cost savings also within our already overburdened healthcare system. Now, this is perhaps the most quoted problem uh, when it comes to cannabis use. As you know, psychosis can be both a symptom of itself or a feature of a mental illness. It's characterized by being unable to distinguish what is real or losing contact with reality. So the cause of psychosis is not fully understood, um, but involves a complex interplay of individual genetics, physical, environmental, and psychological factors. Cannabis is perhaps of more concern in heavy use or with younger people that are still develop developing neurologically. So there have been a large amount of articles proposing cannabis can cause psychosis or schizophrenia, and of course it is a likely risk factor. However, a review article published by uh, Sir and Hart in 2016, it was proposed that the evidence reviewed from previous studies suggests that cannabis does not in itself cause a psychosis disorder. Rather, the evidence led the researchers to conclude that both early use and heavy use of cannabis are more likely in individuals with a vulnerability to psychosis. And I actually read this has been confirmed in another paper just yesterday. Um, so more research, obviously. We need to fully understand this. Wouldn't it be nice to even understand the disease of schizophrenia and things like that more? So science obviously has much work left to do. But we must also consider, of course, the quality of the variety of cannabis that's being used, which until only very recently in this country has been plants bred to just be high in THC for a recreational market. We also need to consider the dose being taken and other pre-existing uh, psychosocial and physical disease within the patient. Now in this study um, by Hickman and colleagues, it was actually estimated that to prevent one case of schizophrenia, approximately 2,000 young men would need to stop using cannabis. Okay? So just giving you some of the different statistics that don't get shown, that don't get talked about. Now, more importantly, this one here, which I think is quite interesting, is that cannabis use has been increasing in many jurisdictions around the world since the 60s. Statistics on schizophrenia prevalence have been stable at 1%, um, and certainly not growing at a rate proportional to the increased uptake and availability. So whilst the topic may, of course, be worthy, worthy of further scientific research, when leading world experts like Professor Emeritus Dr. Uh, Grinspoon from a little-known place called Harvard University and Professor Nutt, a leading UK neuropsychopharmacologist, suggest that evidence is not compelling, I tend to think we could probably use those valuable research dollars <coughs> elsewhere. So this is um, an interesting one too. Cannabis use is harmful. It's of, o often touted. Cannabis is toxic. That's why we use it as a, a medicine of last resort. Um, so it's difficult to find accurate statistics, just so you know, about actual deaths caused by cannabis alone in Australian data sets, as most of the data sets include multiple drugs, uh, which may not uh, have also contributed to harm, so such as things like alcohol or other illicit substance. So as these are not separated out, we don't get an accurate picture of risk, um, but we can certainly see that based on the changes to um, your mental perception and also considering other such statistics, um, based on social or recreational use of cannabis, the increased risk of harm is there. But we need to, you know, look at things and compare apples with apples once more. Data obtained from the Australian government's quit line suggests that 50 Australians die each day from a tobacco-related disease. Um, one every 28 minutes, I think that is. Um, 3.2 million adult Australians were identified as being at risk of developing chronic disease just in 1995. And what about alcohol? Um, that's a pretty sobering one as well. In, in the, in the t uh, document, which was known as Alcohol's Burden of Disease in Australia, 
it was highlighted that in just 2010, there were 5,500 deaths attributed to alcohol with an additional 157,000 hospitalizations, people that you would see every shift. Uh, the burden to the healthcare system is, uh, it's not, uh, it's, it's truly staggering, okay? So can cannabis cause potential harm? The answer is yes, okay? But currently available statistics of cannabis risk of causing harm to the statistics just spoken of its legal cousins in alcohol and tobacco, I tend to fall back on the rather vulgar phrase of comparing a fart to a cyclone. And just how many Australians, this is some data I could find, just how many Australians died of cannabis overdose in 2012, I hear you ask, about the same amount of Australians that were actually gored to death by our native unicorn population, okay? <laughs> Zero, none, okay? As I said, this is very important. When people are talking and touting about the risk of cannabis, almost all of that evidence is from a recreational, unstandardized, no quality assured product. And they just think that that immediately applies to something that has been grown organically to a very high standard, incredibly close quality control, and thinking that it's gonna uh, uh, transcribe across. So they just take all of these risks across and start touting it. And that's not good science. That's not good science. And that's something I always stand up against. It's disturbing. All right, how toxic is cannabis? Generally, to determine toxicity, we use the LD50. You've probably all heard of that, lethal dose 50. So defined as the dose required to kill half the members of a population after a predetermined time frame. Those poor mice, all right? So essentially, the lower the number, the increased toxicity. So this being said, what I want you to understand here is that CBD and THC are in their purified forms, which is obviously not how they appear in the phytochemical profile of the whole plant and therefore not a very accurate representation of how dangerous it actually is. This is a little bit better. In this slide, which is derived from US statistics, you can see the therapeutic ratio to the effective dose over lethal dose. And cannabis has been rated at one to greater than 20,000. So I'll elaborate a little bit on this on the next slide. So just how much plant cannabis, whole plant cannabis, would be needed to cause death. I wondered this, and I needed to go and find an answer. So I started digging. I started digging through all the scientific literature, but I couldn't find anything. The Centers of Disease Control in the USA have not recorded any deaths attributable purely to cannabis in their data sets. And the National Cancer Institute suggests that because there are no cannabinoid receptors in the brain stem, which controls respiration, lethal overdose from cannabis is incredibly unlikely. However, I did find something, a 1988 Department of Justice uh, Drug Enforcement Agency brief written by Judge Francis L. Young after expert pharmacological consultation on the matter in which he, uh, which he stated, and I quote, in layman terms, this, this means that in order to induce death, a marijuana smoker would have to consume 20,000 to 40,000 times as much cannabis as is contained in one cannabis cigarette. NIDA-supplied marijuana cigarettes weigh approximately 0.9 grams. A smoker would theoretically have to consume nearly 1,500 pounds of cannabis within about 15 minutes to induce a lethal response. Now, whilst I'm not sure of the scientific validity of such a statement, of course, that's roughly how much they're talking about. So you have 15 minutes. Your time starts now. I wish you all the very best. Now, understand, however, that I'm certainly not proposing, you know, cannabis is a panacea. 
uh, or it's without harmful effects. There has been a documentation of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome um, is a significantly documented uh, adverse reaction characterized by abdominal pain, cyclic nausea, and interestingly, vomiting. Male predominance, probably not surprising there, history or regular of, of regular or heavy use, resolution of symptoms upon cessation, and a compulsive habitual need to have hot showers or baths which actually provide symptom relief. So the underlying pathophysiology behind cannabis hyperemesis syndrome is unclear, as many compounds within the plant have shown to be uh, used as an anti-emetic. Uh, One thing I would question is, is it other stuff that is in the cannabis plant uh, that's sprayed on it? It's pesticide residues, fungicide residues. This is never studied in the literature. They never actually get their hands on samples. There you go. Yeah, stretch the stomach lining maybe. But okay, so, so inability of the major studies to divide between medicinal and recreational use, quality control issues relating to the production of the plant need to be considered as a potential causation. With recent tests by laboratories in the United States showing that certain antifungal agents, such as myclobutanol, which is sprayed not only on cannabis, but grape and almond crops, is converted to hydrogen cyanide when it's combusted and inhaled kind of an alarming concern in relation to unregulated cannabis cultivation and showing the need for simple and robust organic growing methods for establishing the medicinal cannabis industry here in Australia. Now other side effects that have been associated with cannabis use include tachycardia, hypertension, short-term effects on cognition, particularly including sense of time, sensory perception, uh, attention span, verbal fluency, problem solving, psychomotor control and reaction time. I have a friend that's in the police and he said you can always tell when someone's been using cannabis because they're on the M1 and they're doing 50k an hour. <laughs> we have to, we pull them over and they're just like, oh, we're just being careful, you know. <laughs> so um, large doses can also uh, induce hallucination, anxiety and dysphoria um, in certain individuals, particularly in high THC containing strains where CBD maybe is not there to antagonize those uh, dysphoric effects of THC. Um, and just before we all uh, run off um, and uh, introduce Carol, here's a quote to reflect on. With the recent war on terrorism and the earlier war on drugs both being, so far I think, dismal failures, one has to wonder if the classic Greek tragedy in Aeschylus wasn't onto something 500 years ago uh, before the birth of Christ. So in some uh, things I think humanity uh, certainly has changed, or not changed unfortunately, a great deal over this uh, two millennia. Now the one thing I want to also talk about is that, just before I finish, is that cannabis has been uh, documented and is used as a, a medicine in most cultures around the world, okay? Our written history of medicine is only around 4000 BC, okay? Us in this room, as a species, the modern human, homo sapiens, okay, are, are said or believed to be 200,000 years old. We've got a written history of 6,000 years. That means that 97% of our history as a species, we don't know. And I'm sure that the use of this plant has been linked far longer than we have written record for. Thank you very much for your time today.